welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where it's my pleasure to be talking with Hong Kong historian and author Tony Bannum, who this month is marking the 20th anniversary of his blog and website, HongKongWarDiary.com. Over the years, he's talked to any number of war veterans who were involved in the Battle of Hong Kong and its aftermath. He's talked to their families and he's researched and written four important books on that war era. Tony Bannum has also used his extensive research for the benefit of other projects where the next generation of Hong Kong historians are taking the story forward 80 years on. I chatted with Tony about HongKongWarDiary.com and how it came about. My blog, the website itself, is called HongKongWarDiary.com, all one word. And I established it in around 1999 or 2000, not quite sure. But what makes today important to me is that this is the 20th anniversary, the end of October 2023, is the 20th anniversary of its current format. And it's essentially a website all about the current study of the history of Hong Kong during the Second World War. And can you tell me how you started it? You're looking at it in 1999-2000. So what was the impetus? Initially, I was working on my first book starting in 2000, which was a history of the fighting in Hong Kong between the Hong Kong garrison and the Japanese invaders in December 1941. And uh, while I was researching it, I realised that there were quite a lot of veterans still alive and quite a lot of their families still around, scattered around the world. And it occurred to me there was an opportunity to build a website which would be a honeypot. People with questions about World War II in Hong Kong would come to it, and then I could answer their questions, hopefully. But in return, I would ask them questions. You know, what, what documents did your father or husband or whoever leave behind? Uh, is there anything you can tell me or give me that will add to my knowledge of that period? And what was the reaction? Astounding. The interesting thing is that way back in 2000, the years in, in the internet are logarithmic. So every year is worth you know, 10 of the previous year. So the internet in 2000 was completely different in every possible way to how it is today in 2023. And specifically for this topic, there were only two other websites mentioning Hong Kong during World War II. One was run by Richard Hyde in the UK and covered the MTB escape on Christmas Day 1941 with Chan Chak. And the other one was the HKVCA in Canada, which focused on the Seaforce. So this was the first website about the general story of Hong Kong during World War II. And therefore, literally everybody who entered a question into the, the query tools of the time, which is pre-Google, came to my site and it was fantastic. So can you remember some of those early questions? Uh, yes, um, a surprising number were of the format, I was surprising at the time, of the format, my father has passed away, he was in Hong Kong during World War II and he never told me anything about, it, about the experience, uh, can you help? And that happened time and time again, uh, particularly in those early days. And it was normally the sons and daughters who would email me, again, 20, 23 years ago. And that led to an amazing, huge flourish of new information appearing. Because although all the museums said they had very little about Hong Kong, and all the archives said they had very little about Hong Kong in World War II, and all the local people said there are no you know, paper records of Hong Kong in World War II, it was all burnt during the war to cook rice and so forth, it turned out almost every family of somebody who'd been here in World War II had some sort of records. So it was just a huge mound of unexpected information. So what sort of records? Well, that was the interesting thing. Uh, I, I would often ask them, having answered their questions, I would say to them, you know, did Dad leave anything behind, any letters or photos? 
And they'd often say, yeah, I know, not really very much apart from the diary. And of course, the diary is, is the primary source gold. And that happened more often than not. Now, diary is a strong word. These were not all peeps. This wasn't you know, necessarily fantastic, large works of literature. It could just be a few scraps of paper with a few dates written on it or somebody written a little ditty or drawn a picture. And in the maximum example, I have a diary which is a thousand pages and it's incredibly detailed and accurate observation and everything else falls somewhere in between. But it turned out there are literally hundreds of these things out there. HongKongWarDiary.com covers, so it's basically the Battle of Hong Kong and then right through to the end of the war. Do you continue on afterwards? Well, that's a good question. Initially, the focus was on the fighting, and then I expanded it to be more about the occupation period and the prisoners of war and the internees. Obviously, that's a much longer and much more in-depth story. And more and more in recent years, I've become interested personally in what happened next. And when I say what happened next, I don't simply mean to the people who were here at the time, although their stories are fascinating. You know, what, what did they do after the war? How did they cope? Uh, what, what careers did they build themselves? How did they manage family life? And of course, some of them escaped from Hong Kong and rejoined the fighting elsewhere and had you know, equally amazing adventures all over the world. But also it became about the families themselves. What happened next to the next generation and the generation after that? which is not something that's been studied in any great depth. The first book I've seen about that came out, I think, a year ago. But it really has taught me. You tend to think about wars as being very finite. You know, the Seven Years' War, for example. Wars are not finite. Wars don't end until the last person with any connection to it dies. It's generations of impact. And that, I think, has not been studied in any real depth. And it's a fascinating story. And it's one which more and more I find myself attuning to. Do you think that when you first started off, when you know, when you started researching in 99, 2000, again, what was the drive for that? Because you were one of the key people who start bringing up this history, and it was a real hole in in Hong Kong's history. There wasn't much. There really wasn't much at all. In fact, my research goes back to when I first came to Hong Kong in the late 1980s, and at that time there was a vacuum, an information vacuum. Uh, and I had the most amazing experiences. I'd be up in the hills finding bullets and so forth. And people would come up to me and say, what are you doing? And I, I would show them some bullets or rifle cartridges, whatever. And they'd say, what on earth are those? And I would say, well, this, this is Japanese, this one's British, this might be Canadian. And people would not even know that a war had been fought in Hong Kong, let alone all, all the myriad details which we look at today. So around that period, there were some good books around. Uh, no doubt about it. So, you know, I'm not the first researcher. Some people have done some really excellent work beforehand, but it was all very niche. And again, pre-internet, there was no way for the average person to reach out to these sources. I think also you were part of a period, and I certainly noticed this in the late 90s, early 2000s, where there seemed to be a number of men who had, and they could have been local, they could be from Britain or Canada, and there was this 55 to 60 year period, this distance from the end of the war, they probably had had their families, they'd done their career, they're nearing the ends of their lives. And did you discover what was, that there seemed to be a sense that they needed to have, it's an American term, but have some closure or, or at least rediscover where they had fought in Hong Kong? Yeah, I, you know, it's not the first time we've seen this. I remember as a child in the UK, when I suppose in the late 1970s, American pilots and aircrew who had fought from the UK during World War II started retiring and they would come back and revisit the old airfields and the pubs they used to go to, bringing their families along. I think with the Hong Kong veterans, it took a bit longer and it was later in life 
that they started to think about the past and open up about it and sometimes even confront it, probably more like their late 70s or even early 80s than retirement age. But I hit that period perfectly, you know, by, by pure luck. So, so I was there at the right time and I had the first easily findable resource. And those people, all their sons and daughters, came to me in large numbers. Now, those men, it was mainly men, of course, although there were many women in the internment camps. Generally speaking, they didn't have such a traumatic experience. Same with the children, who often found the, the war to be more of an adventure than anything particularly terrifying or horrible, though not in all cases. It was mainly the men who had had such traumatic experiences that they never spoke to anybody about it except other veterans. They didn't speak to their family, didn't speak to their children. The emotional bond was too big, and they would break down if they even tried to say a word about it. So they had kept their stories to themselves, and suddenly, as you implied earlier, suddenly they wanted to get it out, otherwise they'd be forgotten. And then I come along, and I'm nobody. I'm a fly on the wall. I have no emotional connection at all. And I've done my research, so I can talk to them partly like I'm a veteran, because I, I knew where they were, I knew who they'd been with, I knew the sort of macro-level experiences they'd had. And they opened up to me much more than they'd ever done before with anybody else. To the point, again, where later when they passed away, their children would come to me and say, what did Dad tell you? And then I could give them uh, you know, at least the, the, the acceptable parts of the story. Yes, that was quite, a, I mean, a very interesting from a research perspective, but quite a responsibility from a sort of emotional human mm -hmm. uh, perspective. Were there times in your research where you'd wished you'd chosen a lighter subject? <laughs> yes. Um, the one word answer, yes. Uh, PTSD. We're all familiar today with what it, what it is. And generally speaking, we think of PTSD as being uh, a reaction to something that happens to you. So something terrible happened to you or, or you saw something terrible. And we forget it's also what people do. So people do terrible things in war. Uh, and I would have these gentlemen come to me who had one, two or three of those things comprising their PTSD. Yeah, I was slow to realize, but I think it's fair to say that everybody I spoke to who had survived the Lisbon Maru had PTSD to some degree. And the vast majority of people I, I spoke to who simply fought through the war and then survived as a POW had PTSD to some degree. So it was very, very common. I recall at one point talking to somebody, uh, talking to a, a son of a, an officer and asking him, could you ask your father, blah, blah, blah. And next day the son called me and said, well, I asked my father and unfortunately he now thinks the war is back on again because his father was, was borderline dementia plus PTSD and now he thought World War II was back. I had uh, people saying to me, the veterans, that they wish they'd never heard of me and never met me because all the memories came flooding back and as the memories came back, so did the nightmares. The two, two went together and then the families became concerned. Now, of course, I was a young man when I started this without the experiences I've built up so, you know, since, since those days in all sorts of areas of my life. And I was very naive, especially on the psychological aspect. So I was slow to realize uh, and to recognize the, the emotional, the deep emotional scars that so many of these people had, and not just the people who went through the war. Uh, the, these emotional scars definitely go to the next generation, and in some cases, even the generation after that. And I'm now much more sensitive to that than I ever was. And, and I've learnt that. It's not natural for me, but I've learnt to be more open-minded and um, more open to the emotional side. But surely you also were this place that they could come to that had a, this level of understanding and, and also provided a, a cathartic experience. I would say I've done more good than harm. Uh, and the harm I've done, um, in most cases, we, we got over it. 
So one of the gentlemen who said he wished he'd never met me, uh, he eventually went back to, somebody you know, he eventually went back to Japan with, with his daughter and granddaughter, had a wonderful time there, and came back a better man than he had gone. So, so that worked out. And in many, many other cases, of course, I, I have, I know, been of help. And I know that from the veterans themselves who told me. And perhaps more touchingly, I was quite blown away by the number of times that after XYZ passed away, the family would come back to me saying what a lot it meant to that person to be able to talk to me and how wonderful he found it to read about the experiences during, in, from my books and understand that he and his comrades were not forgotten. So uh, yeah, overall, uh, I'm pretty happy with what I did. If I ever come back again, I'll do it better. <laughs> I know that it's all part of the experience. I'm talking with Tony Bannum, author, historian, and also the founder of HongKongWarDiary.com. So this is a, a blog website that began in 2003, so it's marking its 20th anniversary this year. How are you marking the 20th anniversary, apart from talking to me? <laughs> well, obviously, talking to you comes first. Um, <laughs> I, I've actually updated my site. The site will go live on Halloween, and I've updated it, as I always do. I do it every month. And believe it or not, this site, as a monthly blog, a continuously updated monthly blog at the age of 20, is one of the oldest in the world on any topic. Uh, which, oh, again, really? So that just shows how, how, you know, how we've become so used to the Internet. You, you, it's hard to believe that 20 years is, is like you know, yes. the beginning of time. So I'm updating it this month not only with the usual monthly update, but also with 20 illustrated stories of what I think are particularly interesting episodes during the research over that period. So I'm hoping that people will find that interesting. And I'll be working with one or two other organizations and individuals to promote um, the interest. I regularly get, even today, 3,000, 4,000 visits to my site every month. It will go up and down depending on if Hong Kong is in the news. But I'm going to be interested to see if on the 20th anniversary that number goes up. Well, I hope so, because I think it's such a resource. And also, so for, you know, I see here next generation people and I'm, you know, in my mid 50s, they're, they're in their 30s and they're looking at something that happened and nearly finished 80 years ago, but is still so relevant. And so what I also, if we can go to how you, uh, you met these families, you met these men, and I want to talk more about that. But first of all, I also want to talk about the books that came along as well. You have a set way of writing that is intensive research. And for anybody, you know, not the slightest chance, your, your first book, which covers forensically the, the, the Battle of Hong Kong and the individuals in there. I mean, surely that became a real excellent research tool for many who followed. The idea of that book primarily was to be a foundation for future research. Because mm. I had read quite a few, as I said, quite a few good books about Hong Kong during World War II, but they all started at first principles and then basically told the same story, which is fair enough because that's what history does. But I thought, in a way, that's a waste of time. Because, I mean, history is basically factual. You can interpret it in different ways, but the facts are the facts. So I thought it would be useful to create a book which had those basic facts as a foundation. And then other people could build new research on top of that. So that was very much my thinking. And in the books since then, I've evolved a style where what I try to do is build a skeleton of what happened. So do my research, work out... You know, the, the chronology, who, who was where, when they were there, what they were doing, the basic stuff, build that skeleton, and then make that skeleton as precise and exact as possible, and then populate it 
with the words of the people who were there at the time. So, so it's not me making stuff up. You know, that, that skeleton is meant to be a, a representation of the truth, and then everything that goes in it should be from a primary source. I didn't do that so much with the first book. That was, that was a learning exercise. But for the following three, so The Sinking of the Lisbon Maru, We Shall Suffer There, and Reduced to a Symbolical Scale, those all follow that structure. So if we can just say that uh, your first one, Not the Slightest Chance, is the story, literally, of, of the, the Battle of Hong Kong. And, and then right at the back, you've got all of these indexes of all of the largely men involved and, uh, you know, and their ranks and brigades or, you know, and it's, it's a phenomenal research tool. But the, the second one, The Sinking of the Lisbon Maru, of course, is October 1942, when 2,000 POWs from Hong Kong are, in a Jap are taken in a Japanese troop ship, which is torpedoed by a US submarine off the east coast of China and resulting in, I would say, what was the end death result? It was about 1,200, wasn't it? Well, 828 died in the sinking or thereabouts, and a further 200 died of exposure, malnutrition, exhaustion, disease in the two months afterwards. And then even more died still as POWs, and even coming home from that experience, for further men passed away. So yes, probably in total around 1,200. And then We Shall Suffer There is more the POW experience. Yes, We Shall Suffer There is the rest of the story about the POWs. So I don't focus so much on the Lisbon Maru because that's been cut out and put somewhere else. It's about the other hell ships and the other camps, so Sham Shui Po and North Point in particular in Hong Kong and Argyle Street, but also a lot about the camps in Japan, which a lot of people either forget or are not familiar with, but uh, thousands of the prisoners taken in Hong Kong, whether British or Canadian, were shipped over to camps in Japan proper, many, many camps. And uh, their story had not really been told before. There had been elements of it. Uh, Chuck Rowlands, for example, in Canada, wrote some very, very good stuff about it. But in general, it had not been covered in any depth, certainly nothing comprehensive. So again, my idea there was to create a textbook about it. So in textbook style, it covers every camp and gives an overview of the experience in each. If I'm looking up a certain person in your blog or I, I want to investigate a certain subject, how, how do I navigate it? When I constructed the, the website originally, Google was just an idea in somebody's mind in America. Nobody knew about it. So I constructed my site very carefully in a tree structure so somebody could start at the top of the garrison and work their way down until they found Dad or Uncle Henry or whatever. And of course, you know, within a year or two, Google appears and gets everybody in sideways. So a lot of the structure I built w was no longer really relevant. So most people today simply type in the name of somebody and Hong Kong, World War II, and then Google or whatever will take them straight to the relevant page in my site, and that's where they'll start. If I was just going to look at your blog and I know nothing, what would you recommend? I mean, do you provide sort of all-round history of the war? I don't think anybody finds my site by accident. Uh, I think the, the vast majority of people are looking for something specific, so they would already have a reason to come to the site, and therefore they would know something about it. That's my expectation, because the site really jumps in at the deep end. So the site gets very detailed very quickly, and it's all about the latest discovery about XYZ, yes. um, which wouldn't mean much to somebody with no background at all. But I always say to people, if you're interested in the Battle of Hong Kong and you have no previous introduction to it, read one of the good books out there. So Oliver Lindsay is a lasting honour. Or one of Philip Cracknell's books. Uh, Philip writes some really good stuff. They're very, very approachable and yet detailed and comprehensive. So take that path, get a basic structure in your mind, and then come to somewhere like my resource and you can flesh it out.
Now, I just want to take a couple of minutes and then we'll go back to your blog to say what other things you've achieved over the last 20 years. I mean, we look at some of the pillboxes and, and a lot of them are unprotected. Uh, you know, people don't even know what they are. And then the main artery when the Japanese came across Hong Kong Island was Wong Nai Chung Gap. And you were able to, with historian Ko Tim Kung, to, to work on a proper heritage trail there. Yes, in, uh, I think again, 2003, 2004, I went to the Hong Kong government and I said to them, I've got this plan. Um, I, I suggest we build a heritage trail in Wong Nai Chong Gap Valley. And the gentleman I spoke to, Duncan Pescott, he simply reached into a desk and got out a very similar plan, which I believe was put together by Bill Greaves. And uh, ah. we discussed it and we basically merged the plans and uh, I helped write the signboards and Tim Coe helped with the photographs. Bill Greaves is also a historian come architect here, yes? Yes, and also we were joined by another colleague called Tan who did all the, the diagrams and the, the pictures of the pillboxes. And we worked together on it for a year or two and it went live in 2005. And recently um, the government has rebuilt all the signboards, they're getting a bit old and tidied it up and improved it, which is very, very good. Over the years, particularly in the early 2000s, there were a few times, and I'm very grateful, where you actually said to me, this man is travelling through Hong Kong, or he's on his way to Japan, and they very nicely and very bravely actually sometimes would, would share their experiences with me. But you also have these sort of voyages of discovery in the sense of, you know, you come across uh, an artefact from a soldier and then are able to, to track him. Is that also through archives in Britain? or? Yes, um, and again, a lot of this would not have been possible in pre-internet days. So, so it's quite amazing. These days you pick up an artefact and even if you've never seen it before, uh, you can quickly find out what it is on the internet. And then maybe through an online archive, you can find out who it belonged to. People like the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, when I first started working with their data, probably in 1989 or so, what I did was go to Saiwan Cemetery. I went to Saiwan Cemetery and I asked the, the boss there if he had any old copies of the grave registers. And he very kindly gave me some, so paper, basically paper. Now it's all computerized. And not only can you search for a name, you can also see the grave concentration records. You can see where that person was originally interred and when, it, when he was reinterred and where he was reinterred. Uh, all sorts of details. I there. do find that amazing because that would have been an extraordinary chaotic time for Hong Kong. Yes, but, but of course that paperwork was primarily done afterwards. The, the CWGC, well, in fact, in those days, the Imperial War Graves Commission had a mission to Hong Kong in 1947. And that's when, um, for that, they interviewed many people about where bodies had been buried. They produced burial maps, which I have copies of. They went out and dug them up and tried to identify them and then reinterred them in Saiwan or Stanley. So they really did an incredible job, again, pre-computers. So the amount of work they did successfully just using paper and pen and typewriters is quite amazing. But they kept all those records. And it's those records which were digitized within the last two to five years uh, which I find so useful in tracing not only the individual, but, but learning more about where they were first buried, which can give you all sorts of useful clues. We talked about Wong Nei Chung Gap and uh, the, the historical trail along there. We have air raid shelters, tunnels, the Shingwen Redoubt, which I think is crying out to be a, an area preserved, but with proper signage, that would be a great place for people to see the attempts that were made to protect Hong Kong. So what are your thoughts on, the, on these outside structures? 
Right. Okay. <laughs> I have some very detailed thoughts. I propose an integrated approach. Museums are all well and good. The great thing about museums is you can put them where people are. You can put them in an urban environment, but they're not the same as seeing the original artifacts in their original location. But I think an integrated approach would really repay the investment. So what I would propose is think about the World War II experience, the Hong Kong World War II experience, and integrate the trails we have already, plus new trails, integrate things like the Xing Man Redoubt, all the gun batteries which are out there, the pillboxes, the splinter-proof shelters, all that stuff, integrate the existing museums like the Museum of Coastal Defense. And what we need to insert into that, I think, is more of an education and research center. Call it a heritage center if you want, but that's somewhere where people who are interested in the archives, in understanding artifacts, could come and do research and people can leave artifacts there or family documents or anything like that. They could be left there where they could be looked after by professionals, but only as part of this integrated approach. Let's get away from the idea of having one museum over there and one museum over here and one trail over there. Let's think about it as a whole. If that was done properly, especially in a relatively compact and condensed space like Hong Kong, it could be a world beater. And this will bring people into Hong Kong. A lot of people are interested in World War II. That interest is not going away. And if we want to bring people, whether they're from mainland China, Europe, Canada, America, whatever, and give them something special to see in Hong Kong, then an integrated approach to the Hong Kong World War II experience, I think it would be a very valuable component. In terms of your work currently, though, because I, mean, I know you also did a PhD, but um, you've also collaborated with Baptist University's historian Kong Chi Man on quite an extraordinary map. You know what, one of the most gratifying aspects of the last 20 years has been the burgeoning of interest with young people in Hong Kong, so Cantonese people. You know, when, when I started this research, Hong Kong was still in that stage of immaturity, in my opinion, where everybody was focused on making money and improving things. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, I call it immaturity. That's not, not a good word to use. Uh, it's a good thing. So people were very much focused on improving Hong Kong, building, making money, making things better for the next generation. And now we have the next generation, and they have more time to explore their heritage. And it's very gratifying that they are doing so. So uh, what Chi Man is doing at Baptist University, I think, is an enormously important breakthrough. And not for the reasons why most people think. Because if you look at the Spatial History Project from 1941, which he and his team have set up, you see a very, very modern and sophisticated user interface, much better than my website. It's a user interface which allows you to explore the battle day by day through dynamic maps. It's animated. You can see pictures of people who are there, artifacts, buildings, learn all about them. It's brilliant. And that's very attractive and very approachable and wonderful for the younger generation who are all you know, familiar with the Internet. They're very comfortable with it. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that all that data is based on a database. And that database is potentially maintainable for hundreds of years. And with people like Chi Man and his team who can add to it year after year and improve it and correct it where necessary, it, it, it's just totally different. When I wrote books, and when I write books today, as soon as you publish a book, it's fossilized. There will be errors, certainly errors of omission. And then suddenly, you know, five years after you publish a book, you'll find a new document which could have improved your book enormously if only you'd had access to it then. With a database, you don't need to worry. A database, new data comes. 
you can add it. Better data comes, you can improve it. And you can expand it and you can interrelate items one to another, jump from one thing to another, hyperlink, whatever. It gives you this long-lived, dynamic, curated view of data, which is not possible in any other way. So I think it's tremendously exciting. And I couldn't be more pleased that it's the, the current generation who are driving it rather than old fogies like me. Historian and author Tony Bannum there. So a couple of items. His blog and website is hongkongwardiary.com. So please do go and take a look next week on October the 31st when he'll be launching 20 stories to mark the 20th anniversary. So that's hongkongwardiary.com. The other project we discussed at the end there under historian Quan Chi Man is the Hong Kong Spatial Project. Type that into Google and you'll have it. Congratulations to Tony on his 20th anniversary and a big thank you for all the history research he's contributed to Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>